The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. along with me in your copy of God's Word as we read verses 1 through 8. It's, I think it's so important for you to see with your own eyes what God has revealed so that you know I'm not just making things up, but I'm reading from God's Word and teaching from God's Word. So follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of the Gospel of Mark. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The more that I study the Gospel of Mark, the more I'm reminded of the fact that Mark did not write in a vacuum. When Mark compiled and wrote out his gospel account, drawing largely from the preaching ministry of Peter, he grounded, Mark grounded his writing in history. And Mark particularly grounded his writing in the history revealed or recorded in the Old Testament. Mark assumed his readers were familiar with the Old Testament. He assumed that they were aware of God's previous dealings with God's people Israel. Furthermore, he assumed that his readers would have had a general awareness of the unfulfilled promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. Promises of restoration and also promises of judgment. One of the key themes found at the end of the Old Testament in the section that we typically call the minor prophets, is what we typically call the day of the Lord. That that is the theme of the minor prophets. And the day of the Lord is a period of intense wrath upon the earth, which is particularly focused upon Israel. And so this is a promise of judgment coming for Israel, but there are also promises of salvation, promises of restoration for Israel. So while the Old Testament prepared God's people Israel to expect more judgment, it also prepared them to expect salvation. It gave them a future hope. Both salvation and judgment are features of Israel's future as described in the Old Testament. Around the time of Jesus' life and ministry, any Jew familiar with the Old Testament would have certainly been aware of the somewhat unnerving future that awaited God's people. As one read and studied the Old Testament writings, there would have been much cause for hope to be found, be found that God certainly had a future for his people, but there would have also been reasons to fear, reasons to fear future judgment that was to come. For example, in the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, which we've read from already, and a book that we considered at length two Sundays ago, both of these themes are found, judgment and salvation. If you would, just flip back there with me again, back up past Matthew to the book of Malachi, and just to be reminded of some of these things. This is the very last book of the Old Testament. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, Mark quotes from Malachi. He quotes Malachi 3, verse 1. And in that verse, a messenger is promised who will prepare the way for the Lord. God was preparing to come to his people, but a messenger would come first. Look with me again at chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Behold, I'm, I'm going to send my messenger... And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of his covenant, in whom you delight, 
Behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. So Malachi 3.1 ends with these words. Behold, he's coming. And that's what Yahweh says. And it seems that Yahweh is specifically speaking about his own coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come, it says. And while initially we might think this is good news, that the Lord is coming, and in some sense it is, the initial purpose of the Lord's coming is revealed in verse 2. Look at them again. Verse 2 and 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. You see, the Lord's coming will be a day of wrath, a day of cleansing and purification in Israel, a day of judgment. Look at verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside from the alien and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So when God visits his people, we could say he's coming to clean house, or to root out evil among Israel. And this is Malachi's warning. God was revealing his plan to purify his people. The, the unrighteous and the ungodly would be exposed and removed. The dross and the chaff would be cast off from Israel, and only the righteous would remain. The righteous would be spared. This is the hope then and the promise of restoration and salvation. This was the good news spoken of also in chapter 4. Look there again, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Here we find judgment and salvation. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. So after this day of intense heat and cleansing fire, then Israel, the righteous of Israel, would come to a place of joy. So we say, yes, Israel's future includes both judgment and restoration. Again, every evildoer, it says, will be like chaff, burned away. And the righteous will prevail, will be, and Israel will be restored. And when Malachi finished off the words of this prophecy, and when the, the final words of this prophecy left his mouth, God was then done speaking. That was it. What comes after Malachi is 400 years of silence, 400 years of no word from the Lord to his people, 400 years just to think about what Malachi had prophesied and other prophets, prophets had prophesied, 400 years of silence. And those 400 years were anything but peaceful for Israel. Wars and persecution and conflict decimated Israel in those 400 years of silence. And the temptation for Israel would have been to believe that the suffering that they had experienced in those 400 years was the day of wrath. That perhaps God, had, God was just punishing them and this was the day of the wrath that they had lived through in those 400 years. And perhaps it was over. In Jesus' day, we know the Jews were longing for the prophesied salvation that was to come. Uh, they were an occupied people. The Romans were occupying Jerusalem. Tyrants were ruling over them. We know that they were longing for restoration, for salvation. They cried out, Hosanna, save now. If you're the Messiah, save now, they said to Jesus. But there was one problem. There was one missing piece from Malachi's prophecy that remained unfulfilled and that needed to be fulfilled before that 
future judgment of the day of the Lord could come. Look how Malachi closed out his prophecy in verses 5 and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. You see that. So judgment and restoration just included in, this, in these two verses. So Malachi 3.1, we're told that a messenger was coming who would prepare the way for the Lord. In Malachi 4.5, we're told that that messenger would be Elijah. Elijah would be the messenger. In Malachi 4.5, the messenger is given a name, and it's Elijah. And so in those 400 years of silence, faithful Israelites would have been looking for Elijah, the Elijah that was to come, this messenger who would prepare the way for the Lord. After Elijah came, then it would be the day of the Lord. Elijah would usher in the day of the Lord, and then Yahweh would come restoring his people. But the problem was, after 400 years of wars and conflicts and silence from the Lord, Elijah had not yet come. And it's interesting to note that the Old Testament prophet Elijah, the man that Malachi wrote of, the man who would return before the day of the Lord, is one of only two individuals in the Old Testament who never died. The Lord simply took him home, it says. According to 2 Kings 2.11, Elijah was just simply taken to heaven. He, he did not die. He ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. And it seems quite natural then, quite possible, for Elijah himself to come back and make a bodily return to the earth. So as we leave the Old Testament with Malachi's words ringing in our ears, we should be looking for Elijah's return as the New Testament begins. And this is exactly where Mark wants us to begin as Mark opens up his account. So turn back with me to the Gospel of Mark. Again, in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, he quotes Malachi 3.1. He refers to the messenger who was coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And we know, according to Malachi, that, that that messenger would be Elijah. So Mark is setting our expectation to look for Elijah. But instead of Elijah, Mark focuses his narrative on a man named John, one called John the Baptist. So naturally, questions regarding the identity of John the Baptist abound. We say, is John the Baptist Elijah? If John is Elijah, why is his name John and not Elijah? As confusing as this may be, Mark shines the light on John the Baptist's life for an important reason. It's clear that the messenger of Malachi 3.1 and the messenger of Mark 1 verse 2 is John the Baptist. Therefore, we say he ought to be Elijah, right? John the Baptist should be Elijah. And therefore, based upon Malachi 4 Five, the great and terrible day of the Lord should be coming soon. It should soon follow after John the Baptist, right? That's how it should unfold. Well, the answer of the New Testament is a bit more complicated. When we say, is John the Baptist Elijah? We say, yes, kind of. He's kind of Elijah. This morning, I want to develop Mark's presentation of John the Baptist as an Elijah-like prophet who prepares the way for the Lord so that we can understand Mark's advancement of the storyline of the Bible. Recall that Mark intends to teach us about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 1. So Mark's account of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is really just the beginning of the gospel in Mark's eyes. So today we're focusing on John the Baptist, which is, in some sense, the beginning of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark presents John the Baptist to us as this Elijah-like figure. So this morning, I'd like us to consider what we find here in verses 4 through 8 about John the Baptist and examine the evidence that Mark gives us. And we'll do so in four parts. 
First, we're going to consider John's ministry from verse 4, and then John's popularity in verse 5, and then John's resemblance in verse 6, and finally, John's message in verses 7 and 8. And having examined Mark, Mark's focus on John the Baptist, we'll then circle back to the question of, of the identity of John the Baptist in relation to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. And Lord willing, if we follow all of this carefully, hopefully we'll come away under, with a better understanding of the storyline of the whole Bible and really God's plan for the future and how we fit into that plan. That's the goal. So let's now focus on verse 4. I'm calling it John's ministry. Look at it with me in your Bible. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A couple things to note about this verse as we begin. In the original Greek, the first word in the sentence is the verb. My version translates it as appeared. It could be rendered simply as to come or in the past tense came. It's a generic verb that Mark uses typically or commonly to introduce a narrative uh, or a focus on an incident. So that's what he's doing here. He's giving us, in a summary fashion, this narrative about John. And Mark does not explain anything to us about this John. He seems that he simply assumes that his readers were already familiar with this man, John, as Mark's original audience likely would have been. They would have been aware of John the Baptist already. It's a bit de debated how to best translate verse 4 from Greek into English, but I don't think Mark here is describing John as John the Baptist. Rather, I think Mark is telling us what John was doing. Occasionally, we find in the Gospels, John the Baptist referred to as John the Baptist, but here I believe we're being, Mark's describing what John the Baptist is doing. He's doing two things here. He's baptizing and he's preaching. And both, both of these words in the original are participles, informing us what this man was doing. I believe the English Standard Version captures this well. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And those, again, were the two things that John was doing. And the fact that John was in the wilderness is important solely for the fact that in verse 3, the messenger that Isaiah prophesied who would come in the future would be found crying out in the wilderness. So Mark wants us to see John the Baptist as the messenger who's now in the wilderness. That is clear. John is in the wilderness and he's doing two things, baptizing and preaching. And now be careful to note, I want you to be careful to note that John's baptism here is different than what Jesus commanded his disciples to do, what Jesus commanded us to do in the Great Commission. We commonly call that Christian baptism. We might just call it that this morning, Christian baptism, what Jesus commands his disciples to do. But this is something entirely different. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. That's what Mark calls it, a baptism of repentance. It's also important for us to note that this John the Baptist did not invent baptism. When John appeared in the wilderness, he was preaching a baptism of repentance, but the Jews would have already been familiar with baptism. In fact, we know from extra biblical data that the Jews of Jesus' day had developed a practice of baptizing Jewish converts. So pagans, Gentiles who were one to Christ, or excuse me, one to Judaism, we might say, were baptized and marked as Jews, or worshipers of the one true God. So if a Gentile or someone converted to Judaism, they would have been baptized, or they would have been ceremonially washed. Typically, that was a, a baptism that we say was self-administered which is different than John's baptism. John's baptism he has here is unique in that he was calling Jews to be baptized. That would have been something new. And he himself was pers personally baptizing them. Furthermore, John's baptism is associated with repentance. Repentance, that's a key biblical term that we should all know. Repentance means a deep change of mind. It's a change of mind that produces a change of life. 
a change in attitude, a change in disposition, a change in behavior. Repentance begins in the heart with a God-wrought conviction of sin. It's conviction of sin that leads to a turning of one's life. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, meaning those who were, who were repentant were coming to John to be baptized. Understand here that the baptism did not produce repentance, but those who were repentant were coming to be baptized. In verse 4, this baptism of repentance was also associated with the forgiveness of sins, meaning that upon John's preaching and upon his invitations, Jews were coming to John seeking forgiveness. We can be sure that this physical rite of dunking them in water, immersing them in water, did not produce forgiveness. It's not, it's not like just the, the water forgave them or produced forgiveness in some way. No, it was the personal repentance that led to their forgiveness. This per personal repentance is, is the condition necessary for forgiveness everywhere in the Bible. Everywhere we look in the Bible, without repentance, there is no forgiveness from God. Repentance and faith are, are the necessary twin spiritual conditions that one must have in order to find forgiveness from God. So just to be clear, like Christian baptism today, like we'll do later today, John's baptism did not produce forgiveness. It is not as if someone can just merely be immersed in water and magically have their sins forgiven. That's not how it works. The, the mere external activity of baptism will not save anyone. That is true of John's baptism of repentance, and that's also true of Christian baptism. It's those who have repentant hearts who recognize their need of divine forgiveness and who submit to God, trusting in him, who find forgiveness. This was the case in John's day. Many were coming to John for this baptism of repentance. And therefore, many of them were finding real forgiveness from God. In that sense, we might say John's ministry of preaching and baptism was very effective. Effective maybe to at least some degree. That brings us to verse 5, John's popularity. Look then at verse 5 with me. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Apparently, everyone was flocking to John. The verb in this verse indicates that there was just a steady stream of Jews making their way out into the wilderness for baptism. And in fact, Mark records that all the country of Judea, or all the countryside of Judea, and all the city, or all the people of Jerusalem were making their way out for baptism. We would say, well, Certainly, this is hyperbolic. It's not as if every single Jew went out to John the Baptist to be baptized. How do we know that? Well, we know the Pharisees would never have come. They, in fact, hated John. They didn't want anything to do with this. They didn't think they needed repentance. So we know that not everyone was going out for baptism, but John here is emphasizing that John the Baptist was incredibly, uh, incredibly influential, incredibly popular. He says all the countryside, all of the city, people were streaming out to him. We know, just as a side note, all, the word all in Scripture always has a context. It just, when you see the word all, it doesn't necessarily mean 100% of all people. It always has a context as it does here. All here simply means that John was extremely popular. Mark's just emphasizing the amazing success of this messenger of the Lord. By all accounts, we might say this was a revival. John's message had struck a chord. He created, he created a tremendous stirring among these Jews. So that, as a consequence, massive crowds were finding their way out to the wilderness to be baptized by him. And we know that they were also confessing their sins. They were acknowledging that they had not been living rightly. So there was a conviction of sin and a turning from sin that accompanied these crowds. Like Malachi predicted the messenger would do, 
John was preparing the people for the Lord to come. John's success is actually quite stunning. And maybe we say too stunning. Maybe too stunning. It makes me wonder if everyone who was streaming out to John was truly repentant in their heart. Sure, they, they recognized that they were sinners. They, they identified that they had sinned. They were confessing their sins to some degree, but were they truly mourning in their hearts over their wickedness before the Lord? Were they truly mourning over their half-hearted worship? Were they mourning over their compartmentalized spiritual lives? Or were they finally tired of just external, superficial, Sunday-only religion? Well, one thing is certain. Jesus did not share the same su success that John the Baptist did. We might say, well, for a season he did. There was an initial buzz around Jesus' ministry, but the crowds too soon began to leave him. In fact, the more Jesus taught, the more he preached, the more they left, and they didn't want anything to do with him. We remember in John chapter 6, many, in fact, the entire crowd except for the 12 leave. And Jesus had even fed them a meal. So many were leaving Jesus in his own day. So again, we, we question the legitimacy of this revival or this repentance among the followers of John, these people who are streaming to them. In fact, John himself would look at them with a critical eye. Luke records in Luke 3, verse 7 and 8, that John scolded some of the people who were coming to him. He be, it says this, He began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I mean, how about that for a strategy? The people are coming out and you call them a brood of snakes. I mean, just... That seems like a great strategy to, to build a crowd. But John is rebuking them as they come. He calls them a brood of vipers. And he says, bear long-term fruits of repentance. Not just a one-time emotional stirring, but keep on repenting. Make your repentance a, a way of life and not simply an event. So I suspect that this amazing result that John was having here was actually a bit shallow. Perhaps like most so-called revivals today, the lasting results don't reflect a true move of the Spirit of God. Certainly, if all these people who were flocking out to John were truly repentant and had truly found forgiveness from the Lord, they would have borne the long-term fruits of repentance, and that, would mean, that means that they would have accepted the Messiah when he came. They would have embraced the one who John prepared the way before but he, they did not, we know. Rather, they're the ones who were calling out for his crucifixion in just a short matter of time. But regardless of the lasting fruit of John's ministry, he was certainly incredibly popular for a season. Judging by his dress and his diet, it's clear that John was not seeking this popularity. That, that was not his goal, which brings us to the next verse. I'm calling this John's resemblance. Look at verse 6 with me. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. The fact that Mark chose to inform us about John's dress and his unusual wilderness diet might strike us as a bit odd. We ask, well, Mark, why are you doing this? But Mark doesn't explain why he does this. He just assumes that his readers would understand. Mark always frequently assumes that we have a familiarity with the Old Testament. And in the era of the prophets, camel's hair might have reminded one of the dress of the prophets, how the prophets usually dressed. In Zechariah 13, verse 4, it refers to the prophets wearing cloaks or garments of animals' hair. Camel's hair was known for being coarse. It was a, a cheap kind of hair that one might find. Camels typically shed or, or molt their extra hair at the, before the hot summer months of every year, and such moltings or piles of hair could be accumulated and woven into fabric, coarse garments. And this is what he was wearing. And Mark also tells us that he had a leather belt wrapped around his waist. 
So John, John the Baptist, had the look of a prophet. But more striking, however, would have been the connection to John's dress here to the dress of Elijah found in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. There it was none other than Elijah who wore a garment of hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. So John the Baptist then was dressed in the very same attire that Elijah wore. And the connection is intentional. Mark is pointing us to Elijah in the Old Testament. He's connecting the dots for us. John is not only doing the work of the messenger, he even resembles Elijah. Furthermore, Mark tells us that John ate locusts and wild honey. It's, it was not unheard of in Jesus' day, and even in our day, to eat locusts. In fact, in the Levitical Mosaic Law, People were allowed, Jews were allowed to eat locusts. And in fact, there's a long history of humans eating locusts. I even read about today an African tribe that depends largely on, on locusts as a source of protein in their diets. Apparently, you can roast them or boil them in water, or they can even be dried and ground into a flour. I'm sure some of you are dying to try that. But so locusts are a common source of protein in some parts of the world. And also, along with John, was also eating wild honey. That'd be honey harvested from crevices and rocks in the wilderness or from hollowed out trees. This is what John ate. Certainly, he didn't live on this alone, but this was his diet. And we say, well, Mark, why are you telling us this? That's because this diet was a wilderness diet. It was the diet of a, of a nomad individual, a man of the wilderness. And John was a man of the wilderness just as Isaiah prophesied that the forerunner of the Lord would be a man who would be in the wilderness crying out. So Mark again is pointing us and saying, look, John the Baptist is the one. He's the one that would come. He's Elijah. He looks like Elijah. That's what Mark is doing. And finally, this brings us to John's message in verses 7 and 8. Look at them with me. And as he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark here provides a summary of John's message for us in two parts. One is found in verse 7, and the second part is found in verse 8. We know that John was calling people to repentance, but verse 7 tells us the reason why. It was because one is coming. There's one coming John says, and he says of him, I'm in fact not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal, untie the thong of the sandal strap on his foot. As you probably know, in Jesus' day, shoes or, or sandals were commonly taken off at the doorway of a house, and water was provided for guests to wash their own feet. And between the gaps of leather in the sandals, certainly dirt would have, and mud would have caked the feet. And for a slave to remove his master's sandals to wash his feet, to that removing of the sandal was considered in Israel to be the most menial of tasks. Removing one's sandals was culturally considered to be the ex extremely degrading work, a demeaning task we would say removing sandals is the work of a lowly slave. It's slave's work. And John's words say, he says here, stooping down. He says, I'm not even worthy to take the position of a slave to stoop down and unbuckle the strap on his sandal. I'm unworthy of that. That's how great this one who is coming. I'm not even worthy to do the lowliest task ascribed to a slave because this one who is coming is so mighty. He's so much greater than me. And one testament to the superiority of Jesus over John was the difference in their baptisms. In verse 8, John baptized with water, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, verse 8, Mark 1.8, this same verse or a version very similar of this is found in the other three Gospels as well, which tells us that God thinks this verse is a pretty important he records it in four different gospel accounts. All four gospels attest that Jesus, in the future tense usually, 
will baptize with the Holy Spirit. However, we should be quick to note that nowhere in the Bible do we find Jesus himself baptizing in water. We just don't see Jesus doing that. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 2, John provides a little editorial note saying that Jesus didn't baptize anyone. His disciples were baptizing. So Jesus made a point to not baptize anyone in water. Yet, all four Gospels speak of Jesus baptizing with the Holy, the Holy Spirit. And I think this suggests to us that Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit was not a literal immersion in water. In fact, it was not a literal using of water in any way. It's something far more spiritual. So what is Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit? What is this referring to? And to answer that question, to understand what this means, I think we do best to turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1. After Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then comes Acts. And look with me at the beginning chapter, Acts chapter 1. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. We know he'll soon ascend to heaven. And Jesus gathers his disciples together for some final instructions before Jesus would ascend to heaven. And look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So Jesus gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this tells us that none of Jesus' disciples had yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to expect it soon. And we know with certainty that Jesus was referring to the events of Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts chapter 2. So turn to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 1 through 4 with me. And when the day of Pentecost had come and they were all together, all of Jesus' disciples together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance." This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus referred to in Acts chapter 1. The Spirit poured out in a unique way on Jesus' gathered disciples. This is the very first instance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the unique result of this particular incident is the supernatural gift of these tongue speaking, or the ability to speak in foreign languages. This is the first time we see it in the book of Acts, but we see also this baptism of the Holy Spirit over in chapter 11. So turn there too. We'll see the second account of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll begin reading in Acts chapter 11, verse 11, but for the sake of context, just understand here in this setting, Peter is recounting to the church in Jerusalem God's working among the Gentiles. He's He's explaining to them how God is supernaturally saving Gentiles. So God is blessing Jews and Gentiles alike with salvation. So look at verse 11. In this account, the Spirit of God directs Peter to a man's house in Caesarea for the sake of explaining the gospel to him. We begin in verse 11. And, and behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he'd seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who's also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you, by which you will be saved, you and your household. And as I, Peter, began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the words of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Notice this all happens as Peter is speaking to them. Peter's explaining the gospel. He's preaching Christ to them. And it's at that moment that the Holy Spirit falls on them. And Peter likens it to this being the same way that it happened to the Jewish disciples in Acts chapter 2. That's why he says in verse 16, this is what Jesus was talking about. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter then explains to the apostles and the brethren there in Jerusalem more. Look what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if God gave them, these Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's saying, look, God's including them. We should include them. Then he continues. He also mentions here, after this gift of believing, look what he says in the final verse, verse 18. And when they heard this, this is these gathered Jerusalem Christians, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God has gifted those Gentiles with repentance. God is saving them. They're believing. They're repenting of their sins. And they even receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit just like we did. These are two very clear instances of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And notice that there's no mention of water in either of these accounts. No mention of water. This is Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're completely dry baptisms. They're, They're spiritual baptisms. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit recorded twice in Acts. They do not involve water, but it does, it does involve belief and repentance. Belief and repentance. So we must remember, though, that in Acts, it is a unique season or a unique transitory period in the Bible. It's a transitioning time from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, a time when the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit were still active, Supernatural gifts like prophecy and healing and supernatural languages that God was gifting. I say that because when someone is baptized, when someone is baptized with the Holy Spirit today, usually, if not always, it is unnoticeable to our human perception. In these unique times in the book of Acts, the baptism of the Holy Spirit needed to be externally verified as it was going out to Jews and to Gentiles. But in our day, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is unnoticeable. It's undiscernible. We even see that later in the book of Acts. Such sensory experiences around believing are not typically found later in the book. But we can be certain that Jesus is still baptizing people with the Holy Spirit today. In fact, I would say if one has not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, it would be the same as saying they have not believed. They have not repented of their sins. They have not been forgiven. They have not been born again. So we could rightly say, unless you are baptized by Jesus in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we say, well then, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And if I could just try to define it in one way, this is what I came up with. It is the initiating spiritual act accomplished by Jesus in which the Holy Spirit is poured out on a newly regenerated believer, making them a member of Christ's church and empowering them for service. And I'll say that again. This is the initiating spiritual act accomplished by Jesus in which the Holy Spirit is poured out in a, upon a newly regenerated believer, making them a member of Christ's church and empowering them for service. In this way, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is really the beginning of our Christian lives. It's synonymous with regeneration. It happens immediately upon belief. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this baptism of the Holy Spirit is unique to the church age. This isn't something that happened in the Old Testament. Those who have repented and believed have subsequently been baptized by the Holy Spirit. All true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized by the Spirit. And if they have, they'll continue following Christ in obedience to all of Christ's commands. And the very first command, they'll be 
confronted with is the command to be baptized in water, to follow Jesus' command in Matthew 28 to be baptized in water. They'll have a heart to obey the Lord, and they'll go forth outwardly then to be marked as a Christian externally with the waters of baptism. Those who have been baptized with the Holy Spirit will in obedience be baptized with Christian baptism. And that's what some of our friends will do today. But returning to our passage in Mark chapter 1, we've now considered John's message. The message message mainly is that one is coming and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit, one much greater than John. And so now we've considered the details of Mark's depiction of this man, John the Baptist. But now let's just try to scale back for a moment and zoom out and try to get the big picture. And we ask ourselves, what is Mark doing here? Why is he presenting John to us? Why is Mark presenting John to us as he opens up his book titled, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Mark again has made it clear that John is the messenger prophesied in Malachi 3.1. He's the prophesied one who will prepare the way for the Lord. He's the one who will, was also wrote about in Isaiah. And it, Mark's also made it clear that John resembles Elijah. He's pointed that out to us very clearly, which is important because Malachi said that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So the question again is, Is John the Baptist Elijah? I think that's a fascinating question for us to consider. And Mark helps us answer this question later in his gospel. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And I'll just ask forgiveness in advance. As we end our time in God's word, we're going to turn a bit. And I just want you to see what God has revealed about this Elijah figure, John the Baptist. So look with me. Mark chapter 9 opens up with what we call the transfiguration, when Jesus reveals his glory in a unique way to three of his disciples on top of the mountain. And notably, Moses and Elijah are present on top of the mountain. But look what Mark writes in verse 9, or what he records for us. Mark chapter 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders to not, not to relate to anyone what they had seen, what they had seen on top of the mountain, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come. Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written that the, of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it was written of him. So do you see that? Jesus says here, Elijah has indeed come, and that he was persecuted. Undoubtedly, Jesus has John the Baptist in mind here. Mark chapter 6 records John's martyrdom at the hands of Herod. So Jesus refers to John as Elijah. But Jesus also refers to Elijah's work. Look again at verse 12 of Mark chapter 9. Elijah does come first and restore all things. And the question we should be asking ourselves, well, if John the Baptist is Elijah... Did John restore all things like Elijah would? Has a thoroughgoing repentance broken out among Israel? Did it occur in Jesus' day? Has it occurred any time since? Has Israel been restored? And the answer would be no. In fact, no, Israel is still in unbelief. They rejected their Messiah. They, They killed him. So to help us understand more, Turn with me to Matthew's account of this same incident. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Back up. Matthew records this very same incident, incident, but he includes some important details that Mark left out. Matthew chapter 17, and look with me, beginning in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, again, transfiguration, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. 
verse 10, and his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Well, look what he says here. So Elijah has already came, verse 12, in the past tense, but in verse 11, he's coming. So which is it, Jesus? Is he come or is he coming in the future? This is interesting language. Let me show you one other unique passage. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. This also gives us some information about John the Baptist in relation to Elijah. Look with me, beginning in verse 19. So John chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? The Jews are asking John the Baptist, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So interestingly, they asked John directly, Are you Elijah? And his answer, no, I'm not Elijah. And we scratch our heads. So we have Mark chapter 9 and Matthew 17. Jesus pointed to the work of John the Baptist and said, Elijah has already come. But John himself says, I'm not Elijah. So we say, well, which is it? Well, I think the best answer comes to us in the Gospel of Luke. Since we've already been in the other three Gospels, now let's turn to Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, back up. One, and look at Mark, or excuse me, Luke chapter 1. Luke records for us an angelic prophecy given to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. So look at Luke 1, verse 12. Luke 1, verse 12. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is amazing. Notice how the angel identifies who this baby will be, who John will be. He will be the forerunner before the Lord, and he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. So we say, is John the Baptist Elijah? Strictly speaking, I would say, no, he's not. He's like Elijah. John is like Elijah. He does the work of Elijah to some degree. But as Jesus said in Matthew 17, 11, after John's death, Elijah is coming, and he will restore all things. So we might say it like this. John the Baptist was just the first iteration of Elijah's coming. John the, John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ's first coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. John's mission was to prepare the way for the Lord's first coming. And John did prepare the way. He called people to repentance. But the restoration that Israel long awaited 
never came because the repentance was never full. It was never true and deep in Israel. Instead, in a tragic turn of events, foreseen only in the mind of God, Israel rejected her Messiah. Israel, in mass, turned away from the one who was coming, Yahweh. And so John prepared the way for Messiah in an Elijah-like fashion. Yahweh came to his people, and they killed him. And this, too, was part of God's plan. It was God's plan from the beginning for Christ to come twice, for, for the Lord, the Son of God, to come twice. He came first to die and to redeem his people. And secondly, he'll come again to restore and to reign and to rule. And when he comes again, it will be preceded by a day of intense wrath, persecution, fire, cleansing fire upon the earth, what Malachi called the day of the Lord judgment, or what we commonly refer to as the tribulation period. Before the Lord returns to restore his people Israel and to reign on the earth, first the day of the Lord must come. And that means Elijah must come again. Elijah himself must come. Likely, I think it will be Elijah this time. Now, interestingly, in a Re Revelation chapter 11, a chapter that describes to us the tribulation period, two unnamed witnesses are described there, described in detail. And there's good reason to believe, I think, that one of them will be Elijah. It's true that Revelation 11 does not identify him as Elijah, but it says of them that he will have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time of, that they are prophesying. That's Revelation 11.6. To me, that's a clear allusion to Elijah's most famous work in the Old Testament when he shut up the sky so that it would not rain. So the New Testament leaves us expecting Elijah to come back, the one who never died in the Old Testament, to come back again in a second way, in a second time. John the Baptist was the first iteration, we might say, but Elijah himself will come again to prepare the day of the Lord. Therefore, still, both judgment and salvation are awaiting God's people, Israel. And in the unfolding of God's plan for human history, we sit somewhere in the middle waiting the restoration of all things. And God wants us to know this plan, this course of future. He's left these details in his word for us to know and understand. And this means that through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we as Gentiles have been grafted in into blessing as the church. We've been received forgiveness of sins and redemptions, and now we await the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4. That's what we're waiting for. And after the rapture, after the church is removed, then the day of the Lord will begin. And then Elijah will come back in the form of one of those two witnesses. And the earth will be purged. Fire and wrath will cleanse the people of Israel. And finally, after all these years, they will look upon the one whom they've pierced and they will mourn over him like the mourning of the loss of an only son. Israel will finally come to repentance. And as they do, Christ will come back, Revelation 19, riding a white horse to rule and reign on the earth. That is the future of human history. And this is how we fit in. We're just grafted in, insignificant, unworthy Gentiles who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, brought into God's blessing. And so as I bring all this together, what Mark is so wonderfully weaving for us, I think I just would be best to leave you with verse 8 again. He wrote, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I would do well to ask you, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Again, you, there's no external sign to make that aware to you. I wish there was a stamp on your hand that I could check, but it does not work that way. There's, there's no senses to check. It's a supernatural work of Jesus to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, and it's absolutely necessary. And as we saw in the book of Acts what you must do in order to be baptized by the Holy Spirit is to believe. 
It's after believing, trusting. You must believe and repent of your sins in order to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You need that baptism. More important than any water baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes through faith and repentance. So with that, let's close in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we so much here, uh, so much, Lord, we, I just even am in awe of all that you tie together. What a fascinating book that you've given to us that threads from one end to the other, from Genesis, Revelation, all woven together. You've called us to study it, to know it. You call us to live upon every word of the scriptures. Now, Lord, we don't want to ignore any truth. We don't want to just cruise over details. We want to know and live upon every word because we know that's what you've called us to do. You've called us to be faithful, to study and know your word. And we know that as we do this, that you will equip us for every good work. So I just pray as we think about the future and what is coming and this Elijah to come and John the Baptist ministry and even the baptism of the Holy Spirit, use us to equip us for ministry. Help us to think rightly about all these things. And Father, we pray for any here who have never been baptized with the Spirit, who've never been born again by the Spirit of God. Lord, we pray you do that work in their hearts. We pray that you would convict them of sin, that you would draw them to, to, draw them to yourself, that you would grant them the repentance that leads to life, that you would grant them saving faith, and that they would believe and be forgiven of their sins. Please do that work, we pray. And we pray all this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as a reminder, in a moment we'll observe four baptisms. We're going to come and sing our last song, and then we'll make our way out to the back patio. Again, just would encourage